just how big an issue is water damage to buildings in Australia and what are the possible health issues from mould biotoxin exposure like chronic inflammatory response syndrome or SIRS. Join Amy Skilton in her comprehensive course Unraveling SIRS WDB which will give you the appropriate skills to both screen and manage your patients on their return journey to wellness. For more information and to register, please go to bioceuticals.com.au and click on the Education tab. FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line again today is Kira Sutherland, who's an Australian naturopath and sports nutritionist with more than 20 years in clinical practice. She is the current sports performance nutritionist for the Sydney Marathon and Running Festival. Kira divides her time between clinical practice, lecturing at the undergraduate level, and mentoring practitioners of complementary medicine in the application of holistic sports nutrition. As a keen endurance athlete herself, Kira has participated in many Ironman distance events and marathons and is an avid cross-country and downhill skier, thus providing her with a solid foundation of practical experience to add to her academic and clinical background. And I warmly welcome you back to FX Medicine, Kira Sutherland. How are you, Kira? Oh, I'm really good. I'm excited to be back. Thank you so much for joining us today. Yep. We're going to be talking about women, sport, and what we don't know. So yep. let's start with women in sports research. Is there a lack of research and why? So is there a lack of research? There is, in the past, there's been a huge gap in the research. Um, the last kind of five, seven years, there's a much bigger push. There's a lot more funding to know more about women, especially in sports nutrition. So it's, it's, a, it's a blossoming area, but yes, there is a great lack of actually knowing the difference between how a female body versus a male body responds under certain sporting conditions. Absolutely. And now you're saying only in the last five to seven years, so that's a lack of longevity there. Um, yeah. We don't know long-term effects apart from what we haven't looked at. So, I, you know, I, I guess where I'm going here is I made a comment to somebody once about um, about the yeah. lack of research and they said, no, there is research. So yeah. what's the state of play here? Is there actually misinformation out there about the research? Yeah. Well, there there is research, but then there's also just there's also just a lot of gaps that we don't know. Where we've taken men and women and we've clumped us together within clinical trials, and we've not teased out the information between the sexes. I'm not saying that there's no research because there's some amazing researchers that've been going for years looking at women, but overall in sports nutrition, a good 60 65 percent of clinical research research is done on men, often kind of college age guys that are, you know, 70 to 80 kilos, because those are the easy people to test. And and so we don't we don't have a grand depth of how women respond differently. And there is now a big push to actually figure this out. 
So there's a, a whole gold standard there that's totally incorrect. Yeah, well, we don't know what we don't know. Testing women, and I and I get why we haven't tested women in the past. You know, getting funding for research is always difficult. And then if you have women in a clinical trial for something like sports nutrition, depending on what the parameters of what you're testing are, you need, you know, you've got this dynamic um, person who has their follicular phase, their luteal phase, their ovulation. And we are, you know, hormonally, biochemically quite different in our response to different stimuli at different phases of the cycle. So you either need three times as much time to do some of the testing, or you need to flatline everybody with an oral contraceptive pill. Um, and then the question is, are you actually testing a female body and how they respond, or are you testing a female body on the pill? You made a very interesting point there about um, the time to yep. conduct a research. Is there, in the newer research, is there an elongated amount of time for recruitment and testing to allow for, say, I don't know if I'm saying the correct thing here, do I say staggering the research start yep. point to yep. a period? Is that right? Yeah. I mean, there's people, there's a lot going on at the moment in Australia. Um, there's a couple researchers up in Queensland actually looking at yeah, how do you test women? There's actually a new, I'll send you the paper about uh, that just came out. It's not Australian, actually, about how we should go about testing women in sports, nutrition, oh. and exercise physiology. So there is a new paper on it. I don't have it sitting in front of me, but I will get you the link. Um, we now have parameters of how we should be doing this because, you know, the follicular phase is a very different response to um, a lot, I mean, very different. I should be careful with my adjectives there. It's um, uh, you, we could, can potentially respond differently to stimuli when we're in what you would call our low hormone phase versus post ovulation, which is you know much higher hormone phase. And you know it might not be grand differences, but it's n it's enough that we need to understand it. Have these parameters been set out by knowledgeable women? Or have yeah. they been set out yeah. by men? Yeah, <laughs> uh, both. We have both researchers looking at this, and and um, yeah, both both sexes are looking at this research. There's an amazing um, PhD uh, uh, um, Dr. Kirsty Sale up at or Kirsty Elliott Sale up in the UK, who's really leading the leading the charge on a lot of this and looking at women and health and periods and sports science. So she's doing wonderful things. Dr. Stacey Sims out of Otago is doing amazing things. So there, there is a drive for it. And there are some male researchers on that forefront of women's research as well. We're not being sexist in who's researching. No, but you know, I, I guess my my comment was all also almost anti. Sorry, reverse sexism against males yeah. as well. Yeah. Okay, so misinformation. Is there any misinformation or missing? We could even say missing information. But again, it's that we don't know what we don't know. Right. You know, if we look at, you know, I've been doing sports nutrition for over twenty years, and when I studied. Um, Postgrad, it's you're given sports nutrition, and then there was, you know, and a lot of sports nutrition books are like this as well. You have a chapter on quote special populations, and you have teenagers, you know, disabled athletes, 
um, eating disorders. And then you also have females as a special population. And I get what they were doing and they weren't trying to do it incorrectly, but we're not a special population. We're 51% (laughs) of the population. And, And a lot of people will defend and say, hey, but there's a lot more men in professional sport although that is now changing Changing, as well. You know, if you look within Australia, um, the number one growing sport for women is Australia, AFL. Yep. And we had half a million females sign up to play AFL last year. That's pretty good for a 25 million population. That's incredible. Country. Yeah. Yeah. So we're, yes, we're not as, you know, there's a lot more male you know, professional sport, but that doesn't mean we're not trying to be there playing sport, whether it's professional or amateur or just grassroots sports. Okay. So as a female athlete, have you, you know, seen, heard, um, dialogued about, oh yeah, you know, they say to do this, but that's rubbish. We all do this. Like, have, have you worked out what to do over a period of years anyway? Yeah. Yeah. But you don't always realize, or I didn't always realize it might have been a male-female difference, and it might not be. You know, there's there's beautiful research about um, gut absorption and carbohydrates. This is mainly endurance events, and you know what the maximum absorption is of glucose or multiple transportable carbohydrates. So adding in more than just glucose, and you know, there's research and meta-analysis kind of saying it doesn't matter if you're male or female or how big you are. We all kind of have about the same intestinal ability. Um, you just have to figure out what you need individually. And I I get that. And it's, it's strong research. It's a meta-analysis. But then you kind of go over the last 20, 25 years, I will often go to the bottom or just below the recommended volumes with women, or you end up there just out of that's where they feel the best. So um, it's a long answer to the question, but yeah, you, the guidelines are guidelines. They're not rules. And I think that's where people get it wrong in sports nutrition. And they try to stick to those guidelines. Like it's, it's, that's the only thing you can do, but it's all about flexibility of what each individual can handle. And in hindsight, I've often had women on the very lower end of the guidelines, if not just off the bottom, depending on what they're doing. Okay. So I guess the question's got to be asked here. If everybody experiments and finds their own natural set point, is there the research showing that there is vast differences between the ranges of, let's say, normal intake of carbs? throughout various parts of a circadian cycle. Yeah, that's interesting. It's is it a vast difference? I don't think between that, males think, and females, sorry. Yeah, I think saying vast is probably I would be put, I put yeah. There's there's just you know, I would go for the word subtle. I think there's subtle differences. Yeah. But those differences can make or break an athlete when they're out there trying to run a marathon or do an Ironman or as a clinician, I'm working with really high level athletes, but I'm also working probably 80% of my athletes are age group athletes, right? The, the elite of the elite are working with the Australian Institute of Sports and, you know, places like that. So I'm uh, a lot of my bread and butter athletes are 
age groupers trying to figure it out for themselves as well. And they're not going as fast or as hard as some of the elite athletes that some of the clinical research has been done on. So I think there's a big difference for everybody, not just between men and women. I take the point that when you're talking at especially the elite level, but also, yeah. you know, competitive levels, you know, three to 4% difference oh, in performance is, is massive. It's everything. It's qualifying for your world championships you're trying to go to or ending up in 10th 10, 10th place, you know, and it's so there is a difference. And I was listening. I was actually listening to a podcast the other day by this genius researcher down in Melbourne, Richard Costa is this is this amazing Australian researcher looking at gut integrity and health and sport. And he said in his podcast, and I, I don't think the research was published yet, um, he was finding, he was taking women down by 20% versus men. In carbs, the, are you talking about? Um, in volume of carbohydrates. Yeah. Right? He was talking about endurance events. And so say you gave um, a male one gram per kilogram of body weight and you had a 70 kilogram male and that's what you kind of had worked out works best for them he was suggesting women might do better on 0.8 grams times their body weight in kilos and just that we maybe don't need as much whether it's um you know also that we carry a higher fat percentage so we also have other stores to use or that we weren't as efficient at using larger volumes of carbohydrate i can't remember exactly what he said but it was the first time i had heard a researcher really pull that number down and i loved it because that's often what i have found clinically even though i can't always show you the research on it okay so that's hmm that's counterintuitive to what i've learned previously um what do you mean in that women do require larger amounts of carbs um this is we're talking now in motion while racing ah uh, yeah right, i'm not right. talking about daily carb intake. I'm talking about ingestion of carbohydrate per hour, say, while you're doing a During... you know, seven-hour bike ride gotcha. or a marathon or something like that. He was suggesting um, that they might actually do better on slightly less. So there's a whole conundrum in itself, the preparation versus racing intake. Yes, absolutely. It's, you know, how we need to fuel in the week before an event, or if you do abbreviated carb loading, you know, a lot of that's changed over the last decade as well versus what you actually ingest during racing. But that's getting down to kind of that nitty gritty of how you apply sports nutrition. But to bring it back to women versus men, um, they're starting to also look at, you know, the way we carb load, um, women don't get such a great uh, glycogen volume versus men when they carb load. We just, we're just finding these subtle differences between men and women. And then we need to look at the research and then how to apply it clinically. Is it actually going to make a difference if we change our suggestions for women or not? There's, I mean, there's also that issue of how do women prepare hormonally before sports events? I mean, do Elite athletes commonly, as you said, use OCP to flatline in a yep. prior month to a big event. Let's say the Olympics. Let's say a triathlete, a triathlon yep. or a marathon. 
often it happens. Often people are put on whatever form of hormone works for them so that they're not having their period during really big events. But now we're starting to question um, in some circles, should you be, should we be doing this or not? Or, you know, there's a little bit of research saying being on the pill potentially doesn't allow for as good of muscle gain as people not on the pill. There's, but there's research showing both ways. Right. Um, and not very deep research. I'm going to say that right now. Um, but then there's also the, the issue of, um, of the timing of between events. I mean, yeah. events aren't necessarily every, every month. Um, no. Even on the OCP, you're standardizing for a cycle. Well, and what we're finding is if you're on the OCP, you're kind of flatlining your body's yeah. own hormones and potentially you're missing out on some great benefits. Yes. You know, if you take if you take the follicular phase, so the first two weeks of the cycle, starting with the period, this is where we're lower hormone. This is where we're more similar to men. And there is some research showing that this is where we have our best gains in strength and power, or we have just enhanced gains, I should say. I need to be careful with my wording there. Um, This is where we feel great. We recover more quickly. Uh, We utilize carbohydrate really well. And it's, you know, we're such a dynamic, we're we're such a flux, you know, animal in some ways. I I don't know if I should say that way, but there, you know, we, we're not playing to our potential strengths if we're flatlining and we're, we're missing out on some hormones, you know, the little bit of testosterone and ovulation and all that kind of stuff. Why are we not utilizing our body's natural rhythms rather than just going, oh my God, I don't want to have my period uh, during my race, whereas potentially you could feel better if you did. Yeah. So this goes back to my early question about, you know, you've seen good research in the last five, seven years. We haven't seen this longevity in the research with regards to, you know, bone health, heart health, skin health, f- yeah. fertility, um, all of these sorts of issues. So are they experienced by female athletes? Well, we just don't know, right? We're such an experiment Again. of our own. You know, women have only been on the pill since, what, the late 60s, early 70s. When have we been testing women and athletes? You know, we, we don't know the difference of how we're responding. You know, there is research um, that's come out recently about being on the pill, being protective for connective tissue and not having, mm. I can't remember if it was ACL injury Sports, or yeah. meniscus, you know, it was knee injury that potentially there's a lower rate of injury for women on the pill, um, rather than women in their natural cycles, because there is a period of the cycle where you, everything's more loose and you're more liable to injury. And yeah, that sounds great. Selling, the pill for soccer players, you know, so they don't have ACL injury. But what about all the cascade of other implications of being on the pill? We're not just two knees, right? You've got, there's so much else that can go right or wrong for Mm. women on the pill. Mm. Mm. And so team sports, is it seen, is it common practice for the whole team to be on the OCP to basically control the hormones as a baseline, if you like, from day from a from a point from a day in time. That's a great question, but I don't have an answer for you on that one. I don't tend to work with a lot of 
um, team sports. So I don't actually know what people are doing in that regards. Although I do know there is, there's so much awareness happening. We're on that groundswell of women not wanting to be on the pill and wanting to have their cycles and be empowered with how they feel in the different parts of the month. So I don't actually have an answer for you on that one, Andrew. <laughs> yeah. There's another podcast and certainly other research. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So women, it's it's just we're just in this really interesting phase where we don't like we keep saying, we don't know what we don't know. Women could be performing better, potentially allowing their cycles to happen. But again, it's about having that research done and having yeah, having the stats on women and what the differences are. You know, in Canada, they've recently come out with a ruling that unless there's a very specific reason to only have one sex within a clinical trial, that they must include both men and women. Right. They're the first country to kind of lay that down, and we're hoping other countries really follow suit. Okay, and and just to continue on in that, and in the female cohort, they're going to be yep. staggering the research so that they start from a point in time which is considered day one. Well, you would have to, or they, it depends. They're not, I'm, I'm not sure the ruling went down that far, but it was just the inclusion of women. I think right. probably that next step is, are you actually looking at women as a dynamic yeah. fluctuating being? Because we are very different. But I know when I was looking at doing research, I was talking to my supervisor and, you know, it was, it was going to take three times as long yeah. to put women into the trial if they weren't on the pill, because you do need to stagger it and know where they are. And I, I know there's people in Queensland looking at how to do testing, salivary testing of hormones to make it easier to know where people are. Gotcha. Right. So yeah. at least there's some movement towards oh, yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. There's beautiful movement. And, you know, we're get, we're getting there. <laughs> um, it's just going to take time. Mm, mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. So strict dietary adherence is obviously um, a given for the elite athlete, you know, then you've got intermittent fasting, keto nutrition, body shape, and all of those dietary uses for body shape, not just talking about running, but let's say, you know, powerlifting or, or team sports, we've, we've mentioned those. Yep. Yep. What's, what's happening in that sort of world? What, what do we need to be aware of? Well, it's, oh my gosh, it's an interesting area, right? Because keto is so huge at the moment and it does have incredible benefits in in some realms of clinical practice. But again, where there's kind of mm, two camps or two opinions on where and when it should be applied. You know, there's there's great research on training fasted, when training fasted actually creates further adaptations for the body. But the problem is people take that research and then go, oh my gosh, well, I'll apply fasted training to all my sessions. So I have more, you know, what's termed metabolic flexibility or I'm better at burning fats. But they don't understand that the research was looking at doing it at, you know, two or three specific times a day at times a week where you then had more of a recovery session for your next training session because you're doing it in a low glycogen state. So it's not so much any one style is a problem. It's how the general public then perceives it and takes it into an extreme state, which isn't where it was originally tested. Right. Does that make sense? Well, 
There's a lot to learn. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I find I get these people, you know, that, yeah, two or three sessions a week training fasted mm. um, can be fantastic training in a low glycogen state. We know it has a lot of um, adaptation um, um, I, well, I'm not coming out with the right word there, but it, it has some benefits. But again, you're not supposed to be doing your hardest session of the week um, in a fasted state, uh, potentially, because you're not going to feel as good as you're not going to train as hard. But yeah, we take things and we just take it to the nth degree and and then wonder why we're not feeling so good. What about the pressures on women with regards to body shape. I mean, we're seeing so many eating disorders um, and, I, and I should say the pressures aren't necessarily on the shape. How do you cope here with the strict parameters of diet and, and adhering to a diet and performance? How do you overcome these sort of issues in, in women, particularly with eating disorders or at, at, a, at a, a risk of developing an, a, an eating disorder? So, I mean, there there is a high prevalence in in athletes or people that are very um, sports focused. I know I just saw research yesterday, or the day before, I was reading research on how there's a linking of eating disorders to exercise addiction, um, and they often go hand in hand. So whether we're even talking about the elite athletes or we're talking about everybody. Um, you know, prevalence of eating disorders is high and it's not just in women. There's also, you know, lots of issues um, with men. Um, what we used to call the female athlete triad, which had, you know, under eating or eating issues involved in it and amenorrhea and problems with bone health. That's now been renamed over the last few years, REDS or relative energy deficiency. And that was to be inclusive of men as well as women. And it's it's really being looked at at this big dynamic hormonal, you know, all in, you know, not just hormonal, but affecting every system of the body, this over exercising and under eating for your volume of exercise. Wow. That's such a big issue then. Yeah, it's a massive issue. And not just not just with elite athletes, but you know, to get back to your actual question, if somebody shows up and it's got all the signals of, you know, there's issues around food intake or borderline eating issues, you know, my first protocol is make sure they have the psychological support with, you know, sports doctor, sports psychologist. That's actually I, you know, I will work with somebody holistically, but yeah. I will stay in my lane and refer those people on to work in tandem with me because there's just there's so much in a situation where you've got eating disorders going on. I want to get on to a question later about how do you start changing the mindset of not just women, but also, I guess men as well. But but I want to go back to something you said earlier, and that was, yeah. was it one of the researchers, was it Richard Costa looking at gut integrity? Yeah, he's looking at um, absorption and gut health for, yeah, during endurance sport. Okay. Costa. Are there yeah. any researchers looking at the changes in the gut microbiota over in women a cycle, um, a menstrual cycle? Um, and, I, and I guess men as well. Where I'm going here is you're talking about gut integrity. And I'm thinking of the, um, you know, the, the, the diarrhea with the, um, endurance athletes, usually marathoners, we see yeah. it usually in marathoners, um, with regards to stress, the the shock protein, heat shock proteins, isn't it? Is that yeah. right? Yeah, 
Yep. So um, he's doing a lot of research. I don't, I don't actually know specifically. He's doing a lot of stuff on microbiome, but I don't know specifically. I'd have to go back and look at the kind of suite of publications he's been coming out with. Um, we know the microbiome is enhanced with sport. Um, there's, there is research, although I'm thinking of research that's done on male rugby players at this point about um, athletes tend to have a bigger biodiversity of microbiome. Ah. Um, um, yeah, yes. which is great. Well, this is the good work that exercise helps your bugs. Yeah, yes. absolutely. And bigger diversity yeah. of bugs. Yeah. Um, so we do know that from preliminary trials on men. Um, I haven't seen if he's pulling stuff apart between men and women. I have to be honest with that one. Right. Um, but yeah, he's definitely heavily looking at endurance sport. And I think he himself is also very involved in endurance sport. So Go yeah. Gotcha. I remember some earlier work um, that we're talking about a decade ago by uh, Dr. Cecilia Shing of University. Tasmania looking at yep. heat shock proteins, elite athletes, and I think it was fire personnel, fire. Yeah. Fire. yeah. Well, and um, they were using a probiotic to avert yeah. um, issues with that. But I don't know if there's any work on elite athletes and preventing that diarrhea or helping gut, yeah, maintain the gut sure. integrity. I'm not sure. I do know a lot of, a lot of what we consider to be sports nutrition research actually also happens on our armed forces. Ah, okay. Um, there's, um, I know this more from Canada and America. There's huge budget um, for research looking at armed forces and heat and cold exposure and what that's doing to the body and then how to prevent it or support a body under those extreme conditions. So that's a, that's actually where quite a lot of our research comes from there as well. Although, again, that would probably be heavily male-dominated because yeah. they're a very small percentage of women, although women would be included. But, yeah, so it, it, it's it's interesting where that research comes from. And just also to make another point, in sports nutrition, often our clinical trials aren't super, mm, what's the word? Deep is probably not right. But we, you know, you'll often read clinical papers in sports nutrition and there are only 20, 30 participants because it's underpowered. such extreme and very underpowered. Thank you. I couldn't think of that word. Um you know, you'll often read things that are eight, 15 participants, 20 participants, and that's very standard in sports nutrition. Mm. Okay. So to go on to my question about changing the mindset of women in sport, how do you get them to start thinking um, that, that, or to realize that they're different, they're a dynamic being that, that has particular needs? How do you get them to start realizing this? That's a good question. You know, I think the last decade and especially the last two or three years, there is that big empowerment for women around lifting heavier or being happy with, you know, how do we get a movement for women to be happy with our bodies? Wow. That's oh, like, there's a big one. <laughs> um, you know, it's that, you know, what is the ideal female body? I think it's really about, you know, one of the ways I go about this, I guess, if, if you're asking me personally, is I talk to a lot of my clients about what their body type is, you know, height, muscle mass, the whole thing. And what does their ideal body type look like? Not was, what does Vogue and society's body type look like? You know, like if you don't, I mean, you know me, but for listeners, I'm almost five foot ten. I'm built like 
my Viking slash Scottish ancestry, I would have been a great shield. You're mate, intimidating you know. as hell. Why they didn't hire me for that Viking show. (laughs) Um, So, you know, I'm not going to be this super petite, you know, I never should do gymnastics or, you know, I mean, there's doing sport that you love just for the love of it, but there's also finding sports that suit your body type because Mm. you're going to, you're going to excel in those sports and it's going to feel good. And then in turn, there's the self-acceptance when you feel like you're doing something great with your body. Right. Did that make any sense? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I like, I have a, I have a, I have an almost 14 year old girl, right? So I've, I've, you know, I've been a practitioner the whole time she's been around and it's, you know, I have that fear as every mom or dad of a, of a, especially if a daughter is around body. I mean, don't get me talking on social media, but, um, and we're often talking about this is your body shape versus that is somebody else's natural body shape and and steering her towards sports where her body shape is an asset rather than um, an issue because it scares me when women do sports or girls do sports where their body shape isn't quite mm, – the best body shape for that sport. And that's, those are the people probably at risk first. If we could just take a few little snippets of what you've done clinically, let's say in the last three cases, the last three patients that you've helped, what sort of things are common? What sort of things do you commonly come up against to, cha- to have to change or to, to initiate in people? Oh my gosh. What a question. Um, what are the things, uh, I, one of my last clients, uh, was had hypothalamic amenorrhea. So she, at some point while doing a strength sport, lost, um, body fat and she got below 17% body fat. Uh Um, now for, for a lot of women, 17% body fat is like that mar- that that kind of threshold where a lot of women will go amenorrheic underneath it. She's not an elite, elite athlete, but very strong athlete. Mm. And although everybody's different, some women will lose their period at 19%, others can be down at 14% and still be having a beautiful cycle. But this athlete, you know, lost her period after going on a really strict diet. I wasn't involved in, in that. And so we've been working to get her cycle back. And, and it was a point of looking at bloods and actually going, I think you're still under eating Mm -hmm. for the volume of exercise you're doing. And so it's around the mindset of not being scared to eat. Yes. So many women, you know, everyone has carb phobia yep. and, and I would probably say the biggest thing I have to work on with everybody, male and female is carb phobia. We are so scared of it. Mm. Yes. There's a place for low carb. Yes. There's a place for keto, but there's also a beautiful place for healthy carbohydrates, especially, especially if you're doing a bunch of sport, yeah, right? Yeah. And and so it's retraining that mindset that it's safe to eat and it's safe to eat carbohydrates. And some people may or may not agree with this, but I spend my life kind of trying to teach people, especially around exercise, 
that's your safest time to eat your bigger volume carb because your body wants to turn it into glycogen and and trying to get them to let go of their fear around eating enough. That's probably my number one thing. But that was maybe two things. That's one case. <laughs> Let's go into two more cases. What's the thing? Oh things? my gosh. <laughs> um, I've just been on holiday. You're hitting me hard. <laughs> um what else? Um people hmm. I can't think of another thing right now. I think that's my biggest thing is carb phobia, eating after training. If I could teach every athlete one thing, it's about fueling properly after training. Is this my wish list? Yes. So refueling. <laughs> Let's talk about refueling after training actually, or after yeah. an event. Actually, can we talk about, I'm jumping to my other one, uh, fueling before training. Not every session needs to be fasted. It You will often train better if you have a small snack before training. And so many people wake up in the morning and train fasted in the hopes of more fat burning, yet then they peter out and they're exhausted by the end of their session. And we're not asking people to have a lot of food before training, but just 10, 15, 20 grams of carbohydrate or a little hit of even protein, just something little to fuel their body through a hard session, they will often feel so much better. And um, Dr. Stacey Sims, who's over in New Zealand, is a big advocate of this, of saying women shouldn't be fasted training, get them eating. And, and it's really liberating for women to go back to that. Great. After thinking they have to fast and train. What about intra-event, especially endurance events? What about nutrition during that event? Oh, my gosh, yes. <laughs> so there's different amounts that are suggested during events. You know, if your event is an hour or shorter, you don't really need to be eating anything, especially if you've had something before. There is research on mouth rinsing with sports drink just for a little hit, but I don't tend to do that with a lot of people. Right. Um, up to a two-hour event, the average suggestion is 30 grams an hour of carbohydrate uh, per hour. Um, but again, if your body doesn't feel like it needs that much, go down a little bit. If you get really hungry, go up a little bit. It's a, it's allowed to fluctuate. Um, endurance events, which are really considered stuff over an hour and a half to two hours, it it depends on how hard you're going. But you need to be fueling every hour of the event, not waiting till the end of the event. Yeah. Well, um, what about protein? During events? Yeah. Mm, it's so individual. Most of the research says carbohydrate is king during events, but you can, depending if it's the longer the event, the more I'll bring in a little bit of um, protein and a little bit of fat for satiety so they don't feel as hungry for great stabilization of blood sugar levels, but it's not a large amount. The, the highest I bring in is like a four to one ratio of carb to protein during an event and not all the time. But again, it's individual and you have to play with it. And it's like solid food in an event. If it's a five hour event, a lot of people don't want solids. But the minute you get above five or six hours, I find people really need solid food at a couple points during an event. That's, I mean, it's so interesting with regards to mouthfeel, um, oh. you know, thirst quenching and also yeah. digestive processes during a stressful event. There's so oh, yeah. much that goes into uh, that. How much yeah. do they actually assimilate? Any research uh, on this sort of stuff? 
oh my God, there's massive, there's deep, massive research on what to ingest or how to ingest during endurance events. And, you know, the research is because of so many great big endurance events and and ultra events are kind of the new golf, I think, for middle-aged people, um, which I'm one of. Um, There's a lot of different options and a lot of different suggestions around what to ingest. You know, there's guidelines, but the way I go at it with clients is you really just have to experiment with yourself. But the biggest thing I probably spend my time, so this is number three, <laughs> going back to your question. Yeah. One of the biggest things I end up undoing is people's incorrect ingestion of fluid and foods during endurance events. Right. And it's it's often that they're not having the wrong thing they're having it at the wrong time. Timing is everything so that they're not overloading their digestive system and causing a stomach plug, which yep. in the end then causes either vomiting or yep. diarrhea. Yep. So I spend my time, you know, changing around literally the timing of how they do it more so even than the volume. Yeah. Now, now you mentioned that four to one pro, uh, carb to protein ratio yep. with yep. solid food in extended events. Yep. Has, has that, when you said there's oodles of research, has that research been done on women? I don't know if, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to say I don't know. I can go back and have a look I now. I bet you any money um, it hasn't. Um, well, or a lot of research has been done on men and women yeah. combined, yeah. but we've never pulled out the difference between the two. And I, I hope that research is being done now. And I'm sorry, I'm not further. My brain's been on holidays for almost two months. <laughs> um, that's what I would that, love see, to see. See, that would be a really interesting thing to look oh at about the, spe- the specific needs of women with regards to assimilation of these nutrients and their bodily requirements during an event. Absolutely. And, you know, as far as endurance events goes, when we get to ultra endurance events, we're starting now to see women winning ultra endurance events overall. Yes. Our bodies are actually built for endurance. Yeah. And the longer the event, the more likelihood is a female can actually excel even over some of the men. I mean, it depends on the event. And it, and it, it's not about that, but it's about the fact that we need the research for the women. So I'm sure it is being done at the moment. I'm going to be really positive in that statement. And, um, and yeah, now I've got to have to go look for the rest of the day. <laughs> well, <laughs> so I can send you some links. I'd love to say that my body type is uh, more suited for power, but I think it's more suited for slumber. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like me. I love running, but I'm really slow runner, right? <laughs> I do triathlon, and the swim and the bike is great, and then it's just I love it, a little bit of a plotter of a run, <laughs> but it doesn't stop me from doing it, yeah. you know? Yeah. Kira, there's so much more that has to come out from this. And I, I, I look forward to the day when you and I can have a chat and go, we have these results. That would oh be God, an amazing be podcast. So we'll have you back on the show back then, um, in the future when we have some more information to go on. But in the meantime, I love the work you're doing and the questions oh, that you're you. asking and the people that you're helping with regards to their sports and helping them to achieve their goals. Well done. Absolutely. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. And it's, you know, it's exciting where it's all going for women. It's going to be slow, but we're going to we're going to get there and in the end we might find it 
it doesn't matter that much between the sexes for some stuff and other stuff it does. So it's an exciting area that we're we're getting into. Well said. Yeah. Thanks for having me. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. A lot of what we do here at FX Medicine is made possible by the generous collaboration of our many guests and contributors. We extend our heartfelt thanks as we continue our education of evidence-based complementary medicine.